0: Well, good morning. morning. Today is a pretty special day. I had the chance to meet several of you who are here for the first time, and I'm really glad you're here. I also had the chance to talk to some of you who are visiting uh, once again from out of town, and I'm glad you're here. It's also pretty special for me because I have a visitor, two of them from out of town, that are here today. My dad and my nephew came in this week, and we went camping, and it was really cold, uh, but we had a good time anyway. And so it's nice that they can be here this morning before they go to the airport. Uh, For those of you who are here with kids, how many of you are under the age of 18 in this room? Okay, a lot of kids didn't raise their hand. I don't think they heard me. Uh, If you're here with kids, I'm glad you're here. Maybe you noticed today's a little different. Uh, Today's our family Sunday, the first Sunday of every month. Our kids join us in here, and it's for two reasons. Uh, One, we believe your kids are just as much a part of this church as all the rest of us, and so we want your kids to be in here so that we as a church can experience them. Also, we want your kids in here because statistically, kids who aren't active in the life of the rest of the congregation as they age uh, have a hard time sticking with church and remaining connected to a church when they grow up and move out of the house. So we have your kids in here from time to time because we love them a lot, and we love you, and we want them to grow in faith. Now, if you're here with kids and you're like, oh, I'm always scared, what if my kid makes a noise? Is that you? Or you have kids who've grown up and when you had younger kids, that was you? Anybody? Uh, I'm always, right here in this place, a little nervous for what my kids right there will say, because they say things sometimes that get me in a lot of trouble, like when they agree about my sinfulness and things like that. If your kids make a lot of noise today, you're in the right place, all right? Because when we say you can come as you are, we mean all ages. So if your kid's crying and screaming, we're here to help. We love you. And there's some stuff out there on the table to help your kid engage in today's message. So what is today's message? We just finished a series, Meet Your Maker, where we looked at Genesis 1 through 3 and why do we believe in a creator? And what good is this idea of a creator for the rest of our life and the hope that we have today? And so I thought, what better thing to do if we just started with Genesis than to look at Revelation, right? You know, go from the beginning to the end, we've covered everything in the middle. Now, how many of you have ever looked at the book of Revelation? Anybody super intimidated by it? Cool, about half of you. The other half I need to learn from. You see, the truth is the book of Revelation is often really, really confusing because there's a lot of symbolism and imagery and things in there that we don't use every day. And so we can read the book of Revelation and totally miss what it's all about uh, because we get caught up in all the details. And so in this next series that we're beginning, Letters from God, we're going to look at God speaking to us through actual letters that he gave to the church. Now, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had the joy of going on a double date. Uh, I enjoy double dates because it takes the pressure off of me to be fun. See, when we go on double dates, my wife can have fun with other people too, and I don't just bore her the whole time. It's nice. Plus, when we go on double dates, we typically avoid talking about work, which is great. Well, we're on this double date a couple weeks ago, and, and I was asked this question. Do you think anybody, like, hears from God anymore? Or is that just a thing of the past? And it sparked a fun conversation that was close enough to work that I was a little concerned. But we had a a fun conversation about how people used to hear from God, where they would have these moments like burning bushes, or they'd hear a voice from heaven, or angels would show up, or dreams and visions. and, And how come that doesn't happen a whole lot anymore today? Now, surely it can happen, and for some people it does happen, but generally when it happens, we're a little more reserved and skeptical. Like, what do you mean you saw God? What do you mean you heard a voice? Are you sure that it was actually God? As we begin looking at uh, letters from God, as we begin to look at what he's done and what he's saying to us, this is the question that's burning on my heart. How do you and I hear from God? See, if we believe he is the creator of everything, and if we believe he's always present, and if we believe he's everything he says he is, Shouldn't we be hearing from him? And if we're not hearing from him, are we doing something wrong? And so over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to look at things he specifically spoke to his church and in turn to you and to me through letters to his churches. But first we need to understand the context a little bit. The book of Revelation, as I mentioned, is sometimes really confusing But it is a book that was written by a guy named John. In fact, the very beginning spells it out. I, John, am writing to you. He says, these are the things that happened to me. If you've ever heard of John, there's a little bit of debate which John this might be. But the general consensus, most people believe that this John who wrote the book of Revelation is the same John that wrote the gospel of John. They're the same person. And if you know anything about the Gospel of John, the the one who wrote that one was one of the disciples of Jesus, John. In fact, he writes about himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Seems kind of arrogant, right? Like, hey, here's Jesus loving everybody, but I'm the one Jesus loved the most. But who is this John? See, the, the, the book of Revelation was written about 95 A.D., so almost 60 years after Jesus' death, here comes this letter. And at the time, it was almost unanimously accepted by the church. When they received this letter that's really bizarre, they almost all said, yeah, that's absolutely true. And the reason for it is, this John who wrote it was also known as the elder. And sometimes he was known as the theologian. Why? Well, if you know anything about the disciples of Jesus, about the apostles, the ones who were sent from him to go and share this good news, most of them had an untimely death. In fact, many of them, almost all of them, died at the hands of people who persecuted him. Some died upside down on crosses, some were stoned to death, some were killed in prison, all kinds of terrible deaths. And then there's John, the one who somehow escaped all of that the last remaining witness who was there as a disciple of Jesus. And so when he wrote this letter, the church almost unanimously accepted this is true and this is from God. Because they said, here's a man who was with Jesus when Jesus was here. Most of those we could turn to who was with Jesus, they've died already, but this guy was there. Surely what he's experienced is true and is real. And one of the interesting facts I learned about John while I was reading this is he was most likely the youngest disciple of Jesus. Did you know that? See, most of Jesus' disciples were probably under the age of 20. And the reason for that is there's a time when they're told to pay the temple tax and Jesus tells Peter to go get these coins out of a fish so that he can pay for Peter and Jesus. And the temple tax was something that anybody over the age of 20 had to pay. So how come he doesn't have coins in the fish for the other disciples? Well, it's quite probable that they weren't yet 20. These young adults, these teenagers perhaps, and it's quite likely that John was the youngest of them all, which could explain why he was the one whom Jesus loved. right? Like like somebody who's going to take care of a younger child, hey, I'm going to treat you a little different because you need a little extra care and a little extra support and even a little extra protection from the things that are coming. It could explain why he was so closely loved by Jesus. But now in his old age, as he's preparing to die, he writes down this encounter that he has. And this encounter is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And if you meet somebody who's had an encounter like this, start with skepticism, okay? Because there's only two people, maybe two and a half people, in the whole of Scripture that have an encounter quite like this. And for each one of them, It's Isaiah, possibly Ezekiel, and and then here now, John. For each one of them, when they have this encounter, it's not positive. In fact, they're frightened, almost as if to death. They're terrified of this thing they see. Now, there's a lot of people today who talk about these visions of God and these visions of heaven, and they may or may not be real. But the thing to know is, if you experience God in this way, and you walk away unscathed, you probably didn't actually experience God, all right? Because as you'll see, what he sees is pretty scary. In fact, as you go on in the rest of Revelation, what you see is he has these visions of this great epic war, these visions of a dragon that is fighting against the people of God, these terrible visions of all kinds of horrendous stuff. Which is why when some people read this book, they get really scared. Because they miss what it's all about. So here we go, in the beginning. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. This book begins like this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word of is tricky because it could mean that it's coming from him like he's the one giving it. It could mean that he's the one being revealed Here's the revelation about him. So which is it? Is it about him or is it from him? The answer is both. This whole story, this vision that John has, is coming from God, and it's about God. It's Jesus being revealed to John. Now, Picture this being John as a young boy, perhaps an early teenager, walking with Jesus and seeing Jesus do all kinds of miracles. And picture being there when he rose people from the dead and he fed the masses, when he said, I am going to die and then on the third day I'll rise again. John is the only disciple who actually saw Jesus die. All the others weren't there, but John was there at the foot of the cross, which is why Jesus says, this is your mother, this is now your son. John was the only one who was there for it all. At the transfiguration, that moment where Jesus was revealed as God, and there was only three of them there, uh, Peter and the other one, they fell down and and worshipped. But John got to stand and see face to face, Jesus in his fully exalted, perfect form. Here's this revelation being made known of Jesus, about Jesus. And imagine being John, you were there for all of that. And then you watch as Jesus ascends into heaven, and you see as the Holy Spirit comes down on the church, and you witness God move in these incredible ways, and thousands upon thousands come to know Jesus. And you also witness all kinds of persecution, and your friends, one after the next, begin to die. And one after the next are suffering and imprisoned and tortured. And even John himself at this point was on an island reserved for criminals. An island called Patmos. He, for preaching the word and teaching about Jesus, had been exiled to this criminal island where they would literally work themselves to death. After all this time, Jesus, where are you now? Where are you now? I just wish I could hear from you once more, God. Where are you? And God reveals himself. Here I am. So, look, he made it known to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God. If you've read the Gospel of John, it begins, "In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God." He says, look, I'm the one who was there, who watched all that Jesus did. I bore witness to it. I've told you about it. I've spent my life devoted to it. And now, God has come to reveal himself to me once again. He goes on with this incredible promise. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Before any of this is actually written down, it says, Blessed are the one who reads. Blessed is the one who hears and who keeps them. Seven times in this story, in this book, in this letter, this revelation about Jesus, seven different times there's a blessing that comes. This is what will happen for the people of God, a blessing. And this is, I think, the only one that doesn't have the concrete result of it. He says, look, there's a blessing to come if you read these words and you hear them and you keep them. What is this entire book about? You and I, we believe in Jesus who humbled himself, who is God, who was God, who came down from his throne and became a man. And in that humbled, humiliated state, he suffered and died. And then he rose again. And then after some time with his disciples, proving that he was alive, he ascended into heaven to be the exalted one, the king who sits on the throne to reign forevermore. This entire story, this book of Revelation, is revealing Jesus as the exalted king, the one who was crucified and is crucified and now reigns forevermore. Now, when I think about this world, I often don't see Jesus reigning in this world. Do you? I look at the kinds of evil that happen, the kinds of pain that seems uh, to just persist. I look at good people doing bad things and bad people doing good things, and I say, God, where are you in this? If you're the king of kings, why would you allow children to suffer? If you're this good God, why would all of these problems persist? This understanding that he is the king does not tell us that everything right now is the way it should be. Like we discussed last week, there's a reality that's not yet seen. A thing that is coming that is already, but we just can't know it, this now and not yet. He has already made everything new, and yet we still experience the old. He is already king over everything, and yet we still experience the All kinds of other things trying to be king in our lives. This whole story of Revelation is God being revealed as the king of kings over all things. That's really good news for you and for me. For John, the one who wrote this, that's really good news. Because he's living in a time where worldly kings or emperors were doing all kinds of heinous, horrible things. He's living post a guy named Nero. Have you ever heard of Emperor Nero? The dude was absolutely nuts. One day he destroyed all of Rome, and in like two or three days he burned it all the ground, and he blamed Christians so that he could go persecuting Christians. He would use Christians as tiki torches to light his garden parties. The dude was crazy. John had lived through all of this, had seen the streets lined for miles with Christians hung on crosses, Mocking Christianity. All of this pain and said, God, you don't look like the King of Kings. Surely things aren't as they're supposed to be. So this Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written. See, this was intended when it was given to John to be written down. In fact, twice in the same chapter, the voice that's speaking, the one who's revealing, says, Write this down. People need to know it. Write it down. They need to have it. See, the time was not far off where John himself would die. And at that point, there would no longer be anybody who had been a witness to Jesus firsthand still alive. God says, write this down what I'm revealing. Not only that I am the one who is crucified, I'm also the one who is risen, who reigns on high over all things. Write this down that they may know who I am and what I'm about and what's still to come. For you and I as Christians reading this story, instead of being afraid, we should be encouraged in faith. In fact, it goes on in the next chapter, and it says that in chapter 2, verse 10, that we should be strengthened in our faith by this story, by this understanding he has, this vision he has. Because when we go through hard times, we can look back to this promise that he is the God who's risen, who reigns on high, who even now is the king of kings over everything. And we can be encouraged. And the people of God through this letter are encouraged for one specific thing. You have a mission, a purpose. Go and do. You have a purpose still in the midst of the suffering. When things don't seem the way they should be. When God seems far and you say, where are you God? When he seems silent and you're saying, God I just want to hear from you. You have a purpose to join him in the work that he's doing. Throughout the Gospels, the phrase the kingdom of heaven is often used to imply the reign and the rule of God. His kingship here on earth is happening even now. And while it's not ever going to happen fully until he returns as this story tells, here and now it happens in part when you and I join God on the work that he's doing and we bring his kingdom through the way that we love, through the way that we forgive, through the way that we seek those who are far from him. And we share with them this good news. We bring his kingdom to those around us who don't yet know it, who haven't yet seen this to be true. Blessed are the ones who read this aloud, who hear them and keep them. This whole revelation was made for us to celebrate and come back to time and time again. It it goes on to describe who's giving this revelation. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John is talking here. Who is this one that's speaking to you? Grace and peace to you from this God, the one who was The one who is, the one who is to come. The seven spirits, the the one who was crucified, the faithful witness, this is who's speaking. Here in these couple of verses, John spells out a really clear thing. Our God is this unique three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, this phrase, who is and who was and who, who is to come, this imitates something in the Old Testament. Maybe you guys are familiar. Moses encounters God in one of these other crazy encounters. And God speaks and says, go and set my people free. And Moses is like, whoa, you don't know me, God. Are you sure? What about this? And he's like, look, just tell them that I am who I am is going with you. And that phrase, I am who I am, is very similar to this. The only difference is this is in Greek and sets it in the past tense and the future tense, not just the present When John writes, the one who was and is and is to come, he's saying that God we've always believed in, that Father, the creator of all things, that's the one who's giving this revelation about Jesus, about his work, about him being king, who's speaking to us today. Now throughout this book, you're going to see a lot of symbolism, one of them being the number seven. In fact, there's seven churches that he writes to. And the number number seven uh, in Jewish tradition and custom, it's the number of perfection and completion, right? Because it was on the seventh day that God rested. Everything was perfect. Everything was complete. As a result, everything was holy. But there's more to why seven is so important to them. See, three is the number of God for Jewish custom. And four is the number of creation. And three and four combined make seven. So whenever they use seven to describe God... They're saying, "Look, this God of creation, this one who made everything, this is the one who's still working today." When it talks about these seven spirits, he goes on later to describe them a little more. He's talking about this Holy Spirit, the one who is there at the beginning and is now, just like the Father, just like the Son. John says, "Look, this is from God the Father, and you need to hear it." Now if you wanted to hear from God, where would you turn? For me, the best place to turn is to what he's already said, what he's already saying, what he's already doing. I don't need to wait for some new understanding or new moment that means something to me because what he's already said and already done still means something for me and for you. John says, Look, this is the one who's speaking. Now, the Alpha and the Omega are names. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. So he's like, Everything from the beginning to the end, that's the one who's speaking. So you better listen. He goes on, he describes this pretty unique vision that he has. While he's worshiping in the spirit, he's in this place of prayer. He hears behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Write what you see in a book and send it to the churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, Later on at the end of this chapter it describes what these lampstands and what these, um, these, uh, or in the middle of these lampstands, it describes what they are. But first it says one like a son of man is who he sees. If you've read the Gospels, maybe you're familiar with this. Jesus regularly refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's an Old Testament phrase that was used to describe the one from God who would proclaim God, the one who would tell people about God, that Son of Man. John hears this voice, and he's terrified. He turns around, and he sees one like a Son of Man. And this one like a Son of Man is clothed in some rather unique clothing. It says he's clothed in this robe, right? A robe very similar to the priestly garments. A robe that indicated he had authority as one before God. He was there on behalf of the people. He's clothed with a golden sash around his chest. Gold, the color of royalty, this color often indicating kings. Look, this one, like a son of man, has authority before God, and he is a king. It describes him with white hair. Now, because my dad's here, uh, I'll pick on him briefly. I had the opportunity to camp with him this week, and I noticed uh, very little while I was camping because it was cold, so he had a hat on the whole time. But yesterday, he's standing in my apartment, in the, or in my house, in the light, and I look, It's like, Dad, I haven't noticed how gray your hair's gotten lately. And it wasn't like an insult. I just was in awe. Wow, it's way grayer than last time I saw him. Now, throughout Scripture, gray hair is a really good thing. Anybody in here cover up your gray hair? A couple of you don't want to admit it. That's okay. Look, gray hair, throughout Scripture, is a sign of Wisdom. See, gray hair comes with age, and with age comes experience, and with experience comes a lot of wisdom. And so, throughout Scripture, people with gray hair were intended to be honored and glorified. The whiter your hair, the more you deserve glory, because the more you've earned it, the more you're worth it. So if you're here with gray hair, Dad, you don't need to cover it up, okay? This is good. Gray hair is great describes this one like a son of man whose hair was white like wool, like snow. Deserving of the whitest, the most honor, the most glory above the rest. Here's this one with authority before God who reigns like a king, who deserves all glory and honor. It then continues to describe him that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Fire throughout the the Bible is used to purify and refine. That which is unholy is made holy through fire. That which is ungodly is made godly through fire. It says his eyes are like that. Could you imagine looking into those eyes? And you know that everything you've done wrong he sees, but he's not holding it against you. Everything you have failed miserably at he sees, but he's making it new. And he's making it holy. It goes on, it describes uh, them. He has feet like bronze. All of this is stuff that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 10, pointing to the future Savior. This vision that he has is consistent with the Old Testament of the one who will come to save and rescue the people. And the bronze feet were indicating his strength over all of his enemies, his ability to conquer those who were beneath him. Here's this Son of Man, with all of these attributes. Describes him with a voice roaring like waters, something that comes from Ezekiel, that God Himself, in all of His glory, like the glory in the temple and the tabernacle, would sound like that of a bunch of voices or like that of roaring waters. Here's this man, like or this one, like the Son of Man. Finally, it says that His. Or out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword. Could you picture that, right? Like somebody holding a sword in their mouth? That'd be weird. I I don't think Jesus is literally coming with a sword out of his mouth. No, but a a two-edged sword is one that's there to execute judgment throughout Scripture. The sword wields God's judgment. The very words that he speaks from his mouth come God's judgment. This is the one that John sees and the one who's speaking to John. Could you imagine this kind of vision? I think I'd respond like him too, absolutely terrified. I'm actually kind of thankful that when I want to hear from God, he's not speaking to me like this uh, today because that would terrify me every single time. John has this vision of the, the fully exalted king of kings, Jesus. He sees Jesus in all of his splendor. And he's told, write this down. Write this down. And there's a reason he needed to write it down. As I mentioned, John was the last living apostle, the last living witness to Jesus. In John's gospel in chapter 20, uh, he talks about all of these things he's written. He discusses all of the stuff that's been written down for our sake. And this is what he says. If you put it up there, John chapter 20. Awesome. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John in his gospel, he says, look, there's a lot of stuff Jesus did that I don't have time to write about. But this is why I've written everything down. He goes on. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It says everything that is written down for you is not everything about who Jesus is or everything that he's done, but it's written so that you may believe, and by believing have life. He goes on with one more chapter in this gospel, and in this last chapter of John, he shares kind of a unique story. It's, it's odd that he would end if he's going to tell all about who Jesus is. Why would he stop at this story? You see, the final story of the Gospel of John, uh, there's a guy named Peter. Maybe you're familiar. He screws up a lot, kind of like myself. And Jesus, in his grace, restores Peter. He makes Peter new again. He says, look, I've got a job for you, even though you've screwed up. I've got a purpose for you, even though you've screwed up. Don't worry, I love you, even though you've screwed up. And then he tells Peter that Peter's going to die a terrible death. How many of you want that message from God? Hey, I love you. You're going to die a horrible death. And John records it, and Peter does what I would do. Well, what about these guys, Jesus? They're like, I I know that I'm going to die that way. That sounds terrible. What about everybody else? Will they die that way too? And Jesus says, what's it to you? Who cares? Why does it matter? It's not important. Check, Check this out in John chapter 21. This is what Jesus says. He's like, if it is my will that he, referring to John specifically, remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It doesn't matter what happens to other people. For you, it doesn't matter. Just follow me. But the church, after this, then misunderstood it. And so John, writing his gospel, he actually wrote down what people understood Jesus to mean. The next verse, he says this, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Now, John is near death. John is in his uh, possibly 90s at this time. He's pretty old. He says, look, some people believe I'm not going to die before Jesus comes. But Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. He just said, if that's true, what is it to you? What does it matter? And there's, I think, a reason even further that, that John writes this in his gospel. See, he goes on to say this. Next, he says, look, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. like this one who may or may not die before Jesus comes, I'm the one writing to you. I've written these things so that you can know it's true. Because I was there, I saw it, I experienced it. Even this revelation later, I watched it, it happened, and you can know it's true. He says this, and there are many other things Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Look, This King of Kings, this God of creation, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's done so much more than we could ever fathom. These things are written so you can believe. And shortly after John wrote the Gospel of John, uh, he passed away. And the church was left with this question. How is it that Jesus said he'll remain until I come, and yet now Jesus hasn't come and John has died. What does that mean for us today? I think this book of Revelation, when it gives us his blessing, blessed are those who read aloud and hear and keep these commandments, these things that I've written, I think that's our answer. See, God has come to you and to me, and he is coming and still speaking to us. Through the voice of his prophets and through the voice of his apostles, the ones who witnessed Jesus and his death and his resurrection and who took the time to write it down to say, this is true so that you may believe. And when you and I want to hear from God, when we want to know what he's saying, we don't need to have some big moment and experience and revelation. We don't need some terrifying vision and dream. We already have it given to us in these 66 books, in this book. And we can experience everything there is to know about God that can be known about God through this word. And so if you're here today and you want to hear God speak, you want God to talk to you, I want to encourage you to take time to listen and to listen in his word. It's here that he reveals himself and says, I am the king of kings. I am the one who's conquered death. I am the one who holds the world in my hand. I am who I've always been and always will be. I am enough for you. If you want to hear God speak today, start here. Over the next seven weeks, as we look at these letters to the church, we're going to see very specific things he warns the church against. Next week with the first church, he warns against something that hits pretty dear to me. The longing to be right so often makes us wrong. And that's what we're going to see God talk about and speak to next week. As we finish today, will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you still are speaking to us. We thank you that these things were written so that we may believe, that you commanded your servant John to write them down, that we could know who you are, this God who reigns on high, this king who sits enthroned, the one who's coming to execute judgment, who, to make everything right, the one who deserves more glory and honor than any other. God, may we hear your words, may we see your work, may we know that you are who you say you are, and may we give everything in our lives to sharing you with those who don't yet know you, to bringing hope to those who are hopeless, healing to those that are broken, to joining you in this work of loving those who seem unlovable. God, that together through your words, people would hear from you, would know how great you are, and would come to experience your love today.